Hello and welcome to Cinephil's Take 24. Uh, this week, why don't you tell us what we're talking about this week, uh, Rob, since these are your choices. All right. Uh, we're talking about two relatively unknown directors and two relatively unknown actors. Uh, the directors are John Ford and Scorsese. Um nobody's really and uh john wayne and robert de niro like uh these are like maybe the first time our audience has heard these names um, yeah we're talking about the films uh the searchers by john ford and uh taxi driver uh by uh, scorsese and uh the reason i picked these films is because uh they go together in my head uh, okay yeah, I'm yeah. curious about that. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm I am a big fan of westerns. Um, John Ford has to be given credit for, you know, making some of the most visually appealing westerns there ever were. Um, certainly, um, the locations and the and the and the way he filmed them, uh, his cinematography, and he, he basically paints the some of the some of the I think some of the frames from that movie could be like classic art, essentially, like um, a Raphael or, or one of the Dutch masters or something like that. So, um, but, you know, I'm curious about, about why you chose this one. So maybe you can, uh, yeah, let me know. Sure. So, yeah. Well, like, yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm not a particularly big fan of Westerns. Uh, to me, they're, uh, genre genre that uh it just never really grabbed me um maybe that's because where i grew up i grew up on on the prairies of canada which uh looked very much like every uh scene every setting of a western movie and it's just like eh, this isn't exciting um but uh the reason i picked these two films is because the story is the bare bones of the stories are very similar. The the searchers uh, and a taxi driver, the bare bones of the story. So there's an alienated individual uh, guy, war veteran, uh, who uh, perceives, perceives this great crime and uh, goes on a quest to write it and the crime is specifically the abduction of a of a young girl um and that like so the bare bones of the stories here are sort of the same thing and uh they're they're quintessentially american tales like i don't think you could get like cer certainly with the searchers that that story could be told nowhere except america and uh the story of Taxi Driver, you, you can't set that in anything but uh, 1970s New York. Uh, so they're, they're really American stories. Um, and I think they reveal something, uh, something about the American zeitgeist uh, that uh, unifies it. And like this whole notion, uh, I want to just put it out there. Like, it's not like I... I came up with the notion that the searchers and uh, taxi driver are similar in structure. This is no outstanding analysis of on me. Uh, I like I think Paul Schrader, uh, who wrote uh, 
the script for Taxi Driver um, indicated that he was inspired by the searchers. And then uh, watching it again, it's like, wow. Yeah. Like it's not quite that they try. He transposed the story. Like obviously there's additions, but there really are similar uh, stories. So that's why I chose to put them together. Uh, yeah. All right. That makes, that makes some sense to me. I think, so you'll have to excuse me. I thought I was going to be in a place that had less noise. I'm on campus. <laughs> and now some worker has arrived and is making noise in the back. I'll probably um, try to move. But in, are you able to hear me well? Good enough. Uh, well, okay. the audio's, uh, you're doing, yeah, it's, uh, the yeah, audio's. We'll, we'll go with it for now and, and I'll yeah. move in a short yeah. So, um, you know, that both of them are the uh, sort of, uh, white savior story, right? So, um, and each of these um, anti-heroes, right, is flawed and unlikable um, and violent, um, but also uh, world, worldly wise and world weary. So I thought that, that you know, the, the parallels were interesting. Um, but maybe we can talk about one and then the other. So John, you know, John, John Wayne is one of my least favorite uh, Western authors. Um, I find his style to be, uh, it ends up becoming a caricature of himself. It doesn't really change from movie to movie. Um, some people think he's amazing, but um, I just uh, have trouble watching him in any movie. But it's a, well, the least interesting part of the movie was him. But there were interesting parts of the movie that I thought I would discuss, including the Jeffrey Hunter character and the this sort of half-breed um, uh, subplot um, involving Jeffrey Hunter. Um, so I, I think that this is a, like a 1950s attempt as some sort of um, <clears throat> anti-racism of some weak sort regardless of the fact that, you know, the, uh, in the, the guy, the Native American play, is played by an Italian actor. Um, the, the idea that Jeffrey Hunter, who's this like blue-eyed, very white Caucasian in the brown case, which we've seen before in the other case, um, is this half-breed, um, was meant half-breed as a sort of, uh, Possibly anti-racist story. Do you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do. Like um, the ver the searchers. Yeah, I agree with you on John Wayne. I I have difficulty watching him. He is very far from my favorite actor, or let alone uh, an enjoyable actor, even of that genre. And that genre, westerns, did have some phenomenal actors in it. He just wasn't one of them. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the searcher stands up uh, no, uh, in no small part to uh, John Ford's uh, excellent direction. Uh, it's hard to find, I think, in America, uh, somebody who can frame a better shot, uh, specifically in this uh, period, in the Western. He, he does he does it 
better than anybody else out there and who else was out there well fritz lang also made westerns so like you know he's uh really doing something quite remarkable john ford i mean the lands the landscape is a role in this the landscape is a car um and and he works well with that 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 landscape right um i did the races the racism i do think this was the 1950s equivalent of anti-racism however to the modern eye uh to the 2023 eye uh it just uh it fails like i think it it's attempting to to critique racism but it does a horrible job uh like of it like because like there's like spoke like to the modern eye there's spoken fears of like a mixture of races and this is something that we have to argue against there's racial slurs in this like you know it's not like it, it callings like how they refer to the nephew is really um, in my mind a racial slur like you know it was absolutely uh, so, yeah, yeah. The, the, the term half breed is a race, racist slur and and he's and he's what he's a eight, uh, I think, um, Comanche, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then I do think like a pro, like just about the race. Uh, again, John Wayne portrays this guy as a hero, like he throughout, like that's how he's acting it. Forget how John Ford is directing it. Forget what John Ford wants to say. John Wayne is portraying this like he's Captain America. Um, and which brings but um and that's a real problem because if you get past the obvious posturing of a hero, uh, which is even like it, I watched the trailer to this beforehand, the original trailer, uh, before watching the movie. And there's the, the famous uh, shot where John Wayne discovers the bodies of the, the first, the massacre family. Um, and he's portrayed like the lensing of this, he's portrayed, he's shot as a hero in that moment. Yet, like the truth of the matter is, he's an obsessive serial killer of uh, racialized people. Like that's he's an unrepentant. Yeah, his previous yeah. job was, you know, yeah. fighting for the Confederacy. Yeah, right? like fighting. So main, yeah, main, maintain slavery. Yeah, and he was unrepentant about that. That was pointed out in the movie. He's unrepentant. Uh, like he wasn't at the surrender, and then the I forget which guy. I think it's the Reverend or the Captain. The Captain Reverend. He was both things. Uh, saying at one point, I didn't see you at the surrender. Did you actually surrender? You know, and John Wayne's like, no, I'm kind of, it's like, I'm going to be John Wayne over here, you know, and it, it's sort of like, yeah. So, and I think, like, to be very clear, I think what John, John Ford is doing is criticizing that character explicit uh, in a not too subtle manner. Uh, he's inviting the audience to take a step back and go, yeah, th this character is uh, deplorable, uh, disgusting. And he's doing a deep critique 
of America and American racism. I think that's what Ford's doing. However, John Wayne was not, didn't get that memo. And John Wayne was not portraying, like he was portraying it against what Ford wanted, I think. Uh, I, I um, agree with you totally. So John Wayne comes in and does his John Wayne shtick and is absolutely this swagger and saunter and hero uh, in his mind. Um, but, you know, the, the arc of the character is clearly meant to be um, instructive uh, about, about uh, and even though he finds his redemption, right, when he, you know, takes it upon him, his big heart to save his niece, right, even though she's been with the Comanches, um, you know, he, he, he um, is just a, a rotten, terrible, horrible, no good nasty guy um, who I feel corrupts the Jeffrey Hunter uh, throughout um, and engages in gratuitous uh, violence. There were things in it that were supposed to make us, again, you know, um, view him somehow as more than that, like the fact that he knew some Comanche and that he was able to, you know, um, he was, he looked down at at everyone um, in a very not very noble way where you just, you can't help but despise this character. Right. And there's also like this critique. It's a really violent movie. Like, even, like Westerns are by nature violent. Uh, it, they were the action movies of the 19, the genre action movies of the 1950s and 60s. Um, and um but this movie in particular is really, it's a cut above on the violence, like um, both the shown violence, uh, the spoken violence and the emotional violence, like all, all three registers of violence are really off the charts uh, in this. Like um, I guess the emotional violence, it's like, yeah, here's, here's a girl, like the girl who gets abducted, there's just that. That's profoundly. That's like a. And then the scene where they're showing uh, the survivors of the Comanches, uh, who were quite clearly victims of sexual trauma. Uh, you know, it wasn't spoken of directly, uh, but it's like quite clear that's what they were. They were they were trauma victims of of sexual abuse. Um, and this movie does a nice job, I think, John Ford, of ultimately critiquing that violence, that tendency towards both violence in America uh, and also violence within the very genre and the very movie that he, we've been watching. You know, like, be, and you get that in the end where uh, the niece now fully grown or I don't know now a young adult 18 maybe uh, I'm not sure on the exact timeline it was a long time that he was looking for but she ends up running away from the gunplay like so here is the vic the the person to be saved and what is she ultimately retreating from not the Comanches not the white guys but violent but the violence of the world she lives in the violence that of her entire 
world and I and the Western. And I think the Western movie as a genre, this movie in particular. And I think that she's uh, that John Ford, like that was a that was a conscious directorial choice. Um, that wasn't like, oh, well, what do you want to do now? How do you want to end this thing? <laughs> you know, like uh, and I think that was a real indictment to it really subverts the whole movie and the genre. And I thought that was brilliant. Uh, I thought that was a, a, a brilliant moment in cinema that I think. It is a, yeah. it is a and first of all, it's, it's one of the more honest Westerns about violence from that era. Uh, later Westerns will not only um, show, you know, violence uh, to the same degree or worse, um, but then they start to glorify and uh, embrace it. And so, you know, one, we've already seen the spaghetti westerns, I think they, they do glorify the violence in a way that this film does not. So you're dealing with um, you know, late 50s audience in, in the U.S. There's a, um, what is it, the Hayes Act or whatever it is that had, um, you know, required the rating system. Um, and, you know, sensibilities are, 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 you know, a little delicate compared to us. And for Ford to push the envelope like she does with the depiction of the oven violence, and, you know, um, you're right, references to other worse violence is brave. And I think you're right that he had a project to it, and that was to not be uh, even if John Wayne was uh, in his hand fisted rock. Yeah, I thought um, that was really an important moment um, or not an important moment, an important statement um, in this uh, film. Another thing, but like the race thing, like as as good as this movie might have been at the attempt at at anti-racism, you know, there are some things which are really... uh, poor choices um like the one guy who was mental who was uh, had some cognitive deficiencies and how he was portrayed yeah how he was portrayed as basically the the mascot of this group and i thought that was that was he was comic relief um is how he was portrayed and i thought that really could have been that was really insensitive uh to the modern eyes and it should have not been that character could have been wholly eliminated uh from it um yeah and of course yeah i totally agree that that was gratuitous i I mean we you can make fun of Charlie, right? This other guy who's very slow, but he's not um, clearly impaired. He's just a stupid guy. <laughs> um, and you wouldn't need the Moe's character to punch down him. Right. And yeah, like, it, I, yeah, I just, uh, it was really, uh, like, if you want to say this was a classy movie, uh, which I think you can make that argument, uh, this is really, uh, punching down 
uh, this, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's other ways to do this, uh, which I'm not going to excoriate John Ford for it, but you know, it was a, it, maybe he was just paying homage to the genre. And there are always these people in the genres in the Westerns who are the, the, the cognitively deficient that is played up for laughs. Um, and it's, a, it's just a pity that he, it, he paid ha- He, uh, didn't transcend the genre with that. Um, I guess. Well, I mean, it's a genre that Ford um, embraces and makes, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is the preeminent Western director at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you ever saw The Fablemans with that scene with... uh, Yes, I did, yeah. Where, um, (laughs) you know, David Lynch is... It's a a fabulous scene. Um, And, you know, it's right. I was watching this thinking of that. All the horizons are either at the top of the screen at the bottom of the screen. So he had absolutely done that. Um, but nonetheless, this is his, I mean, he's, he made this genre. You're not going to see him define much of it. But, I mean, I think it's a painterly film. Scenery is well done. And I have a couple of problems. You know, I teach in Texas here and uh, there is nowhere in Texas that looks like that. And that was not filmed in Texas. So that no. sort of annoyed me. Yeah, where was it filmed? Um, I, I, it looked Onion like Valley. Yeah. Valley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, in West Texas, there's some scenery, but not nothing like that. Um, and they're talking about the Brazos, and Brazos is meant central. So just doesn't didn't make any sense. So, people looking at a map of all who had been to Texas would have been confounded. But you know. Um, I think this was a story that he had turned into the movie, kept everything except he didn't film on location. Yeah. Is there snow in Texas ever? Um, there's uh, yeah, in North yeah, North Texas uh, there's there's some snow, but not not uh, like that. Yeah. Not yeah. Like that. I don't uh, have the mountains. So yeah. The highest <laughs> elevation here is I think two thousand feet. So Okay. Yeah. So it's basically underwater. Um, yeah, no, um, but yeah, that, that is uh, pretty low. Okay. Um, so, and something that really annoyed me too was just what you've mentioned is uh, the blue eyed, the blue eyed uh, indigenous person. Uh, I thought that was just like, no, you know, yeah, like, you know. Really, they could have. Uh, well, yeah, the yeah. Comanche yeah. leader Star, right? Yeah. You can't watch Star now and not, not think of uh, the Lion King, unfortunately. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but that that's a travesty. The casting there and the, I mean, they they had actual. I mean, you can find any number of actual Native Americans to be in movies in, in the United States if you try. The choice of this, you know, Italian American actor to play it is is outrageous, and um, you know, there's no way to justify. Yeah, like it's just, uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, so but it was um, cool to see Jeff, Jeffrey Hunter, who would become, of course, known for his 
failed Star Trek incarnation, specifically Pike, uh, 10 years later, um, who is actually, I thought, he was quite good in the film as a, as a young actor. He, he provides more gravity, I think, than Wayne does, um, and a little more sympathy because he, he maintains his moral, um, you know, his moral uh, balance throughout, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, that's uh, a testament to that character. Like who, you know, if we are to say that there's a hero in this movie, uh, him uh, might be the, you know, like uh, he's, he's uh, the moral center who does not get really swayed uh, and actually mature, like, when John at the start of the movie, like there's a number of years that like, how long are they searching for uh, John Wayne's niece, Ethan's niece? Uh, it seems uh, like at least seven or eight years, maybe altogether. Maybe, maybe as little as five, but more more like seven or eight. Right. That's what I thought too, because like she was, she was really young when they, when Scar took her. Uh, and then, She's like, what, 18, 20 ish when they find her. Yeah. So it's like a long time. And uh, strangely, like she's the only one that really ages there. Like, um, like, like Scar looks basically the same. Uh, John Wayne even looks. Well, I guess they do do a bit with they they take a bit of the color out of his hair near the end of the movie. But essentially the same uh, yeah and uh, I thought that was that was an interesting point of the movie which I think you know I think people missed maybe I'm wrong uh, uh, but I think people missed like okay so like who goes looking for an abducted person for this long you know like for eight years like that's not being a hero that's not being self right that's not being somebody who fails to give up or who clings to hope that's that's a psycho you know so if 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 john wayne were a more nuanced actor we might have portrayed we might have seen this character as obsessive as seeking some sort of redemption for this act. Um, but he just comes across as though he had nothing better to do, unfortunately. Um, so I, I don't, I don't get that sense from him that, you know, this is a, a you know, re redemptive um, action on his part um, because he was going to, after he found her, he was going to kill her. Right. He was going to kill her. Yeah. You know? And, and that's, that's, yeah. yeah, right. Like spend eight, ten years tracking down somebody, tracking down a victim just to murder them. And that was his explicit goal through most of this movie. Then there's right before she was abducted, the whole like the meeting where there's this really interesting uh interaction between John Wayne, uh, Ethan's character and, uh, 
who is it? Is it? Uh, it's the mother. It's uh, Debbie's mother uh, who ends up getting killed. Uh, I don't know. You know who I'm talking about. The I don't know the actor's name. Um, where John Wayne, where she says to John Wayne, how long has it been since you've been since we've seen you? John Wayne answers eight years. And then and they're friendly. They're the his brother's wife and John Wayne are very friendly. And uh, then you find out that Debbie is eight years old. So John Wayne is friendly with the the mother, perhaps too friendly. He's been away for eight years. Uh, the brother isn't exactly thrilled to see him. It's not, you know, like, and it's like, so like there's a subtext of like, in reality, was this uh, John Wayne uh, trying to hunt down his daughter, his illegitimate daughter to murder her? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Like, there, you know, there's nothing good. There's nothing good about that, that story at all. It's, it's, yeah. Like, it's, you know, like, and I, it, I, I think it's, I don't think I'm making any huge inferential leaps that are not supported by the dialogue. And, um, you know, and that, and I think the audience at the time missed that, you know, like, you know, like they, because I think they saw John Wayne as John Wayne. He's yeah. Yeah. Like he, he's on the screen. He has to be a hero and he's acting like a hero, even though he's a serial serial killer of indigenous people on a quest to murder his illegitimate daughter uh, is uh, one way that I, to read this. Uh, I think the right way to read this film, but anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Despite the actor's best attempt yeah. to completely destroy the story. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm clearly not a John Wayne fan. And, you know, I can't hear Oh, yeah, <laughs> both of us. It seems it's like so. What's the, what's the takeaway from uh, our discussion of the searchers? John Ford, good. John Wayne, not. Okay. I went to a restaurant the other day that, that was blasting country western music. And one of the lines from the song. I'm sure it's quite popular in people. You know, me. I don't know if any of our listeners have heard it or like it, but. My apologies. It was one of the, one of the lines was um, uh, John Wayne, Johnny Cash, and John Deere. These are our values, or something like that. You know, and I can't think of a, a, a less congruous group of things because Johnny Cash doesn't belong to set. And I don't see you know anything about John Deere and John Wayne. I just see him as Johnny um, obvious. You know, he's not a subtle actor. And 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 I don't think he was a good actor for various Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think he I've never seen him in anything where it's like, wow, that's awesome. You know, like uh I know people celebrate him as a great actor, but uh I don't get it. Uh I never have, you know. Well that's that's Wagner led to the B B movie John Wayne types like Ronald Reagan, which yeah. uh, I don't know what happened. So, uh, yeah. yeah, 
Maybe we should move on. Yeah. Uh, so to I, I think like if John Wayne is not my favorite actor, Robert De Niro in Taxi, Robert De Niro, who was in Taxi Driver, is one of my favorite actors. Um, I think he's basically every movie he's in. Well, not every he has made some for just money. Like now he's basically a restaurateur uh, in Soho, uh, New York, and a prop a proper he's he's got out of acting per se. Uh, and I think when he was making the transition, he just did a lot of movies to make to make a quick buck. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's always yeah, fabulous. Yeah. He's always a, yeah, you know, but, a presence. Yeah, like it's it's really hard to uh, not watch him just tear through this the scenery when he's on when the when the camera's on him. Uh, and Taxi Driver again is a really in well, like who does uh, Robert De Niro play in this movie? To me, he plays uh, an incel, a nineteen seventies incel. You know, like that's. Uh, that like that's what he is and he's like and he's he's uh it's a disgusting character that he portrays but i think to the credit of paul schrader and martin scorsese uh they wears this might have been lost in the nuance of uh the searchers it's front and center there's no way you can like travis bickle in this movie and there's no way you can sit there and go oh yeah he's a hero you know like or he's he's the answer we've called for despite his constant protestations in the internal monologue that he is doing the right thing and that he is like you know trying to clean he wishes a rain would come and clean up all the streets you know it's like no this guy's a psycho you know this guy is a psycho who's uh scares the shit out of everybody who he encounters like even the other taxi drivers are very distant to him uh, you know it's like eh. <laughs> like even the like uh yeah everything about him he's just you know the uh, type you know you yeah know, we know the type the type of person you can tell there's something off the Nero brings that to the character with just uh you know with such subtlety that I mean, every time I've see, I see it, I've seen it dozens of times. Probably, I have seen, you know, just little nuances of his performance that make us aware of this person's deep flaws, um, without without being a caricature. So, you know, the mo- the modern movie, The Joker, is of course a riff on Taxi Driver in some ways. Where it's a character. The taxi driver, Scorsese is fantastic in his direction. I mean, first of all, he makes again the much of the character is the city of New York. Uh, this part of it's the scenery, it's the 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 environment. Um, and uh, you know, Scorsese's got a love affair with the city that comes through in his in his movies. Um, but then you know, Bickle here is. He's screwing it up. <laughs> He's criticizing all the stuff that you know we're seeing that is quintessential to New York. It's the stuff that we were, you know, pulled in by. Bickle is just 
Yes. And um, yeah, the like there's yeah, New York is it's the grimy New York of before Giuliani gentrified it and ruined it, um, you know, but like, you know, it's not a, it's it's the New York of um, other movies we've seen uh, and talked about. Uh, but it's it's shot very lovingly. Uh, and I quite enjoyed looking at the city. Uh, and I guess, uh, like a lot of people cite, uh, Woody Allen's Manhattan a few years later, quite a few years later, um, as a love of, as a homage, a love note to, uh, New York city. But I think, well, Woody Allen is such a hugely problematic individual. Um, whereas I think it's uh, much better to look at Scorsese and how Scorsese is shooting New York, particularly in Taxi Driver, also in Mean Streets, where you get like a, a more honest and authentic uh, love note to New York by showing not... It's greedy. Yeah, not showing it's, Rockefeller Center, but yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, um, the, the gritty, off the beaten path, sort of sleazy parts of New York are are embraced by the camera, um, and the score. I have to say, so the score is is captivating, um, brilliant. It just uh, it it is. You know, fifty percent responsible for you know every scene we see of the place because it turns out it. I find that you know the whole movie comes off like jazz in the scenes outside and, and uh, in a in a, a loving way, yes, in some sort of emotionally uplifting embrace of the city. Even with those crappy cabbies, right? Uh, I'm talking about their terrible rides they love new york too you know they're part of it and in it and embrace it in some sort of way except for Bickle, who's this yeah he's an incel I, i'm i think of somebody like uh timothy mcveigh right who just hates people and society in general yeah yeah uh or john rambo from first blood <laughs> yeah uh but, uh, you know, like you got this, yeah, the score for this movie, uh, Taxi Driver, was in complete harmony with the themes of, with the movements of the camera and the themes of the movie. Uh, you know, it it didn't merely complement them, but it elevated them all. Like it really gave, like, what was going on with the instruments really gave some insight into uh, where Travis Bickle's head was at uh, in some key moments uh, and was complimenting what the camera's actually seeing or showing you. Uh, like, uh, okay, we're going into a nightmarish world and then there's like this amazing orchestral swell uh, from Bernard Herrmann who did the, I think this was his last score uh before he died uh who's like and it was really miraculous and i think of this yeah 
precisely. We've we've seen in also movies where the score works against uh, the film in so many ways. This is the exact opposite. Uh, it would be hard to imagine Taxi Driver being as great as it is if you transposed the score, if you took out Herman's score and put in something else or left out the score entirely and just had dialogue. Like, this is truly a movie where the score elevates it. And I think that's really remarkable uh, in cinema. Uh, it's a new, it's what the score does. Um, I guess when I think of like a place where it really the musical soundtrack becomes a thing in film uh, is uh, John Williams and Star Wars uh, and um, Superman, the first one, uh, which came around shortly after Star Wars, Jaws, I guess. But like this is... Donna, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and Spielberg, yeah. yeah. So those, you're right. So the ability to, to elevate each of those things. And, and that was important in this film because the, you know, for a Scorsese film, the cinematography is is not the not as vast, I'd say. It's, you know, the opposite of John Ford's West. It is a tight compact there's no vistas there are alleys and corners and you know these compact spaces uh, so having that score um, to, to you know to elevate those scenes i think really makes it accounts for at least half as i said of the, of the, yeah. the effect like you're in a real you're always in a very constrained space in taxi driver and this is like I think a representation of the profoundly constrained, alienated space inhabited by Travis Bickle. We really are inhabiting his world, but like, like all the major moments in this movie, they take place in really tight spaces, like the, the theater where uh, Sybil Shepherd uh, is like, no, we're done here. Um, this is like a, this isn't like an, a, a, modified vaudeville house this is like a dingy dingy theater you know um and even like you know everything about it like all the shots of bickle's apartment so many shots from inside the, the claustrophobic space of a taxi cab even when we're going down the street it's dimly lit it's night it's pouring rain you know it's fog there's it's yeah. everything is designed to feel to make the viewer feel trapped. And Every, when things happen outside, they yeah. tend to happen in, in cars. Yes. In, in, the, in the cab or whatnot. Um, so a couple of things that I I wanted to um, get, get a gauge from you on, you know, Simple Shepherds and and Al Brooks. Um, play these this cult, right? And that becomes his first sort of predation right? to, to go after some of the Shepherd's character and to kind of get uh, Brooks out of the way. And he starts to, yeah, he does these incel tricks, right? Of um, trying to undermine their friendship. And Sybil um, Shepherd is ethereal looking. She's just, you know, lovingly bitch and um, has a quite an astonishing face. 
um, but is ends up becoming very peripheral, a sort of a, a ethereal character, not, not much character there at all. Um, it's a very male movie uh, and focused on Bickles, Bickle and Bickles characters. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's looking at it from Bickle's perspective. Like, I don't think, I think we we're in agreement here, but I, I think, uh, like, how does an incel view every woman? Um, my guess is as a entity that is both revered and utterly lacking interiority or an interiority that they that is completely foreign and alien to them. Why? Because they're such alienated individuals. Um, and I think that's how, when Sybil Shepherd is interacting with De Niro, uh, Travis Bickle, that's how she's portrayed. And that's most of the movie, to be very clear. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we don't, we don't, we don't learn uh, anything about her, really, because Bickle doesn't want to know anything about her. But when she's talking, like the very few scenes before when Bickle is stalking Sybil Shepherd, uh, but he hasn't made contact yet, uh, we're introduced to Sybil Shepherd's character uh, completely extrinsic from Travis Bickle's gaze. Um, and she's very witty. You know, she's she is accomplished. She's able to carry on a conversation with uh, Tom, uh, Al, Al Brooks's character, you know, and you get this, the distinct sense that, well, it's, she's the intellectual superior in this conversation uh, it, with with uh, Al Brooks. Yeah, no, she, yeah. she is. She's yeah. smarter than any of the, the men in this film, clearly. Yeah. Right. And I think, and it's just that moment, like, and it's really like those few scenes uh, before Robert De Niro's toxic gaze overtakes the film uh, that I think uh, she, she is fleshed out as a, a substantial character. Um, but I think then when Robert De Niro, when the camera becomes, uh, Robert De Niro's gaze, then it's all, then it's all gone, you know, like, because I don't think he's capable of looking. I think he has essentially two modes. He can either look at, uh, people as enemies or as potential enemies, uh, or as, um, things that he that are that are foreign to him that he doesn't understand so i think it's like he's in this space where it's like okay either you are something which must be eliminated or you don't or you're a peripheral that might become somebody who might might have to be eliminated like and i like right. this, so like, like the, that's why he turns his anger toward the candidate right who right drew her attention from him um in some way right right like what did the like he 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 obviously didn't know anything about politics uh yeah, he didn't care. 
Yeah, like um, yet suddenly he's wanting to kill the political candidate, you know, and it's like, why? It's like he's like a wood tick in this movie. Uh, He has like very few uh, capacities for uh, affect. It's like, yeah, you're either sleeping or you're sucking blood. Um, And it's like that's all wood ticks do, you know, like they don't have anything else going on you know like and that's a that's a pretty interesting analogy of it and you know he's a a particularly well-armed woodchip unfortunately so there are a couple other a couple other performances i thought we could talk about before we wrap it up um you know scorsese makes an appearance himself in that scene where he's in the back seat right because there there his wife is up in the apartment with some some black guy, and of course, Scorsese's going nuts about this. He's obviously poked out of his board, um, and you know, thinking about killing the guy and using racial slurs left and right. A um, couple of things to note: that isn't. I mean, Scorsese doesn't make make much of a stretch in portraying a character like that himself. Um, I think, which is odd and interesting. He has an interesting biography. He had that was a troubled time in his life. He had been in numerous affairs, and he was also coked out of his board, um, in like real serious trouble. And um, I I don't know how much the racist stuff um, is authentic, but it isn't so hard to imagine. It's you know him thinking some of these thoughts was. In truth, there's almost no black characters in yeah. any Scorsese. I'm, I'm just running through all of uh, Scorsese's films in my head, and there are, there aren't many black characters. And those that are there, what is their exact role in the film, and what are the lines spoken to them? And it's it's not a great uh, resume of representation of racialized people. Yeah. That you know, like yeah. You know, like and, uh, and the race. So he he cast Kaitel mm-hmm. as a what a Puerto Rican pimp. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> so then, sort of ostentatiously misappropriation uh, of it. Right, and like again, like you you can at the time you're like, well, it's just because Scorsese loves Kaitel and he thinks Kaitel's a spectacular actor, and Scorsese has his. Uh, people that he likes to collaborate with. You could say that at the time. However, it's like there's the deeper question of, well, why the hell did you were shooting in New York? You couldn't find a Puerto Rican actor, really? Or 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 just make him a white pimp. Yeah, what's it got to be? Yeah, yeah, you know, like you you could do you could do this uh, you could do this either way, um, and avoid the the criticism of uh, attempting to whitewash uh, or explicitly whitewashing. So why not? But he doesn't. He didn't do that. And then you can look at. Scorsese's other films, like, you know, I'm thinking of The Departed, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, There are 
there's black there are black people in that which is kind of remarkable because there usually aren't in scorsese's films and really you know like they're like these are choices and they're they're more beyond uh well it's just because i really like all of these actors who happen to be white men um you know the the only other the only black character really is the other black taxi driver who is kept as a you know a caricature like that black taxi driver was uh sort of he was hardly in he was he was there only to be the black caricature taxi driver um and uh yeah i think um there's also yeah so but that getting back to scorsese his shot his scene in the back of the taxi cab i'm not sure like de niro De Niro's reaction to that, both uh, in the in the moment, uh, he's looking at Scorsese with a con- Scorsese's character, who I think is nameless man in the taxi cab. I don't think he has a name. Um, is uh, scorn because he's like looking back at him in the mirror, contempt. But now then the thing is. And then he goes on and basically adopts many of the things that Scorsese is actually saying. And he just adopts that persona. And so it makes me wonder, like, you know, there, there are two questions that come up. Like, one, is uh, De Niro's reaction to Scorsese, maybe he just has contempt for everybody? Probably. And... Uh, so that uh, uh, that first effective response is sort of, well, that's his baseline contempt. And then he actually takes it as inspiration. And then there's the fact that Scorsese or Scorsese's character is presented as well-to-do. Like, uh, like not like the uber wealthy uh, master of the universe, but not somebody who's a taxi driver, not somebody who's suffering, not not a wage laborer. Uh, we get, and then it's like, so then are we to generalize Scorsese's character to? Well, this is really American masculinity, you know? Like this is like this is really what like is that Scorsese's statement? Like, yeah, like this yeah. is you know. Oh, yeah. These are a bunch of, um, you know, impotent, angry males who lash out with violence. I mean, and the Peter Boyle character who lashes out with verbal violence every moment he gets. All of them are angry, angry males. And um, they're just swinging wildly uh, at everything around them. Um, and and I, again, I think this is not meant to glorify it. So I think that. You know, kudos to Scorsese because he's not glorifying it. Um, and everything goes wrong for Bickle because of it. Um, except that it goes wrong in a way that ends up becoming right, which is frustrating. Yeah, which like Scorsese, I think, uh, in interviews afterwards, or Schrader, because both of them are became incredibly famous, uh, you know, uh, 
important people uh, in cinema uh, have said that, like, you know, Bickle had this scene happen, had this will replay for Bickle. His character doesn't emerge from this movie transformed. It's not like he wakes up afterwards and he's like, okay, incel no more. No, it's more like, okay, my, my, my homicidal rage has been validated by the world. He's going to repeat this and uh, in some way. And and Scorsese and Schrader have both said, or one of them said anyway, it's not going to end well for Bickle. Like it's he's this is this is going to end terribly. Uh, um, he's not to be regarded as a hero, and he's not to be regarded as having any sort of redemptive arc um, at all. Yeah, and, no, it's clear yeah. that he hasn't learned a thing. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, society learned from him. Right. Right. Yeah. Violence becomes. Um, embraced, it becomes uh, rewarded. Uh, is taxi mythic. driver hero? Yeah, you know, yeah. taxi driver. Yeah, and uh, I really wonder if that is like Scorsese's and Schrader's stunning indictment of society. You know, it's like here, here and we. Impressions, unfortunately, yeah. it's all yeah. very impressions. Yeah, you know, here we have. Here we have American society. They take incels and and validate them and make them heroes. Uh, you know, and and then along comes Mark David Chapman, John Hinckley, and the and then you know Bernard Getz, all of whom are imitating this character, right, in search of that hero status um, in the real world. So I mean. I think we have to also, um, I think this movie is important social, socially because it does, like some works of art, inspire a lot of imitators who do horrible things, right. even though it's great art. Yeah, um, and I think that was totally against, it was totally against what Schrader and Scorsese were doing with, uh, were attempting. They were attempting That's like this. Yeah. Deep critique. But like, I do remember like where I went to undergraduate and probably where you did too. They had this uh, every fall, they had a huge poster fair where you could buy art prints for your dorm room for soup. And this is where everybody got their like Van Gogh's Starry Night. And it was always a thing. Another thing that was always among those prints was the taxi driver poster and in particular Robert De Niro are you looking at me are you talking to me that whole thing where he's doing the stare down in the mirror which apparently was mainly improvised by De Niro I want to point out how brilliant that is like that's like that's like we've talked about how Rudger Hauer's improvisation this is like the care this is the brilliant moment of cinematic improvisation here but how that scene in all the movie posters is marketed to every undergraduate male in their 20s as look at this cool guy 
you know, like, and like, that's at least, and I did my undergraduate in Canada, but that was like at every Canadian university. Um, and it was like, yeah, this really had a cultural impact. Uh, and to this day, like, or not to this day, cause I did my undergrad quite a few years ago, but <laughs> back then, and, uh, you know, like even what, uh, Bickle was, uh, like his army jacket, you know, like this has sort of become, this has become the de facto uniform of all of these guys. Like even the ones that, like you mentioned, like McVeigh, yeah. uh, you know, like this is, and I do remember like, because Robert De Niro, even with his Mohawk looking like a psychopath, he, he does look kind of cool, you know, like he does, you know, like, and it's like he, he can't help it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, he gets his he's fucking Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, like you yeah, know, yeah, like and you sit there and you're like, yeah, like there were too many people wanting to emulate this, uh, which brings, yeah. I guess, us back to uh, Plato's Republic, uh, book ten. What are we to do with this? You know, like if this we're is the bad poetry, man. Yeah, <laughs> like, like if we're if we're if we're Glaucon, it's like, yeah, yeah, kick Scorsese out of New York and never give him another movie yeah. camera. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's not inspiring virtue. That's true. But then, if um, we're but pull- nonetheless, it, it's a, it's phenomenal art, and you know, yeah. we have to recognize this is one of the great not only New York films, but obviously Scorsese, one of Scorsese's best, and he does oh, yeah. mostly. Yeah, he does. Uh, yeah, we. I guess before we we uh, sign off here. Jodie Foster, what what are we to make of uh, casting Jodie Foster in this movie? No, so I, don't I have a lot, I have some thoughts yeah. about this because with a an almost thirteen year old daughter, I find it um, very problematic and troubling. Jodie Foster is a tr- tremendous actress and, and did a great role in it, but I think it was exploitive. I think that. Um, you could have cast an older actress um, to play that person. Um, nonetheless, you know this this character in, in this film is essential to this sort of his his final act. Um, but I, I have trouble with J- Jodie Foster as as that actual thirteen year old person. Or she was eleven or something. Yeah, like first of all, her portrayal was brilliant. Uh, I yeah. have no, you no know, like, like, but should have she been allowed to do that? You know, like, no, you know, no, I can say honestly, no. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, and this raises like this. Um, I guess another movie. I probably of the a, a close to the same time period, Badlands by Terrence Malick. Uh, you know, and I'm just saying close to the same time period because Martin Sheen looked to be about the same age as he was in uh, Apocalypse Now, which was roughly contemporaneous with uh, Taxi Driver. I think two years difference between the two. Anyway, Badlands uh, has a similar, well, she's not, a young girl 
who becomes involved with uh, a Charles Starkweather-like character. And Sissy Spacek is cast as this, as cast as a 15-year-old. Sissy Spacek at the time was uh, in her 20s, so there was no, like, but she, yeah, she pulled off specifically Sissy Spacek because of her physicality, pulled off a 15 year old that was utterly believable. And so I'm yeah. wondering, it's, it's, like it's there, a possible thing to do. Yeah. And I think there is a moral duty for directing to try to do that. Right. As opposed to, I don't know if Jodie Foster's ever spoken out about how this traumatized her or not. She, she hasn't. I mean, she, yeah. she says it was no big deal. For her. Yeah. But uh, again, I'm not sure we should be putting young actresses in, or actors yeah. in that position in the first place. Yeah, and I'm not saying, like, you know, save the child here, but I'm saying, like, you know, there's something troubling about having... Okay, yes, it's okay for... It's just a film, but dress up. But say these lines, you know, uh, and, you know, that's that's there there's there's problems there and uh, again yeah. it's like i i don't i don't know the fact facts of it but it's like uh like it was this, a choice yeah uh, for scorsese i yeah. think given her age it was less of a choice for foster right you know and uh yeah um i do have some issues with that particularly how I, and I do want to, since we're on the topic, I, just Jodie Foster was amazing in this movie. Like oh, yeah. her, her, her conversation with De Niro in the diner where, first of all, Sybil Shepherd is a great actor. And, uh, jo, but like Jodie Foster in her conversation with De Niro, where even she's realizing uh, in her visual cues that, he's a nutter, you know, like, and like, this is a, this is a, it's amazing for the actor to do this, I think. Um, and what, which is really extraordinary. Um, yeah. So I just, yeah. A couple couple trivia things about it. So it was going to get an X rating. I'm not sure if you realize that, but because of the violence, it was Mm going to get an X rating. Um, so um, Scorsese refused to cut it. Um, and what he did was he, he desaturated the scenes with the blood. So the color of the blood would be a muted dark moon instead of uh, uh, blood culture. And then he passed to get, a, he got, and his R rating. Um, shortly after this film, um, he succeeded and he had apparently skipped out at Cannes. He just left Cannes because um, he ran out of coke and he had to go to Paris to get more. So he just left and wouldn't do any more press. He said something like, no more questions until I have my okay. And he went to Paris. Um, and De Niro was left cons to carry the day. Shortly after that, De Niro got him to straighten up, um, got him clean, because he went to him and he said, listen, I know you're giving up, but you got a lot of a lot more work in you. 
uh, maybe we should make this film. Um, and what film was it disposed? Raging uh, Bull. Yeah, which was like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah, like, yeah. That, uh, that's again a brilliant film. And, yeah. and you can thank De Niro for, for that and for Scorsese's many decades more work because of that. Yeah. Those are just and, trivia facts. Yeah, and that uh, the desaturating the blood thing. Yeah, that I didn't know that that was uh, a direct response to uh, the film writings uh, board, but yeah. it led to a whole other false narrative about this movie. Uh, okay. Like the the desaturated. This, tell me the desaturated blood of uh basically takes place in the in the penultimate sequence of the movie where he's going into the brothel uh, uh and killing everybody basically um people that's where the blood takes place the desaturation takes place people have made the argument that because the blood was desaturated in an unnatural way, because this clearly does not look like blood, uh, that that whole sequence was a dream sequence. Uh, so I, I yeah. had, you know, after watching it this time, I actually, one way I tried to deal with it, In that, yeah. in that sequence. So maybe, you know, after he goes in, he gets killed and everything is a dream sequence, including his being elevated to like this hero. Yeah. Like, uh, like, and it, and it, and as soon as they, that got introduced, well, if that's a dream sequence, what wasn't, then you can, then you go back through other parts of the movie and it's like, okay, well, it was, and this has gone right to literally the second shot in the movie. Uh, when he gets into the taxi cab, it's gone back and they've suggested, well, maybe it's all been a dream sequence. That's now that whole reading of the film has been entirely discounted by Schrader and Scorsese. Okay. They're, yeah. they're, they're no, like, I mean, that seems too. Yeah. Too silly for. Yeah. For yeah. Movie. Yeah. They're like, uh, it's Scorsese is like, I've made, mo I made movies after the fact, uh, Shutter Island, which was yeah. attempting to totally mess with the audience's perception. But this was absolutely naturalistic cinema. I was not trying to, uh, or realist cinema. It was not attempting to, uh, I was not attempting to mess with the author and traders like, nor was I, uh, when I wrote this script, um, the injuries received by De Niro in, in that penultimate sequence were horrific, but also, you know, very like immediately after it's, uh, quite apparent, like he he was in he was in recovery for a long time. It wasn't like went to the hospital and got a couple stitches and walked out. Uh, so that's how they're. And it's like that's in the script. It's in the film. It's not a dream sequence. Yeah. But it, it's interesting how it gave rise to this spurious uh, reading. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 
Um, okay. Well, uh, what did John Ford mess up and what would you take out? And what did Scorsese mess up and what would you take out? Uh, or what would you keep? Um, so, I mean, every, I, the only thing I have to complain about in Searchers is John Wayne. I obviously despise yeah. everything about the, the rest of the film is great. I think the casting, of course, the white, mm-hmm. you know, the blackface casting yeah. of, of Scar is also unnecessary yeah. and, and unfortunate. Um, taxi Driver, um, I, there, was, there isn't a thing I would change. It's really sort of like a textbook um, a case of perfect direction uh, and acting and editing and scoring everything. Oh yeah, perfect. yeah. Like I, I do have my questions about what Scorsese, like the casting decisions. But I think yeah, we, yeah, we agree yeah, about yeah, the yeah. questionable yeah. decision. Yeah. But like you know, also like I don't want to give Scorsese a pass and say, well, it was just a period. Period, but like a lot of people were doing a lot of effed up stuff with casting, uh, you know. Uh, so, and uh, but the yeah. rest of the film is yeah. so good, I, I think yeah. we forgive it. And I think it was all to make, and it was these questionable choices, none of them negatively impacted the film. Like, they like yeah. who knows? Maybe, maybe, I maybe we're missing the boat here and maybe like Scorsese did call in a whole bunch of older actresses for Jodie Foster's part and they weren't as good and Scorsese was like okay yeah you were clearly the best now just so you know uh and everybody knows like this is what's going like maybe it was all eyes wide open here um and above board uh, yeah, like, okay. yeah, who knows? Um, okay, so what's up next for us, David? All right, so I had a little trouble, but I, I have two I want to do because, um, and there's some relation here. First is a Scorsese film, uh, After Hours, oh, great. Uh, which you like that film? Yes, I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun film. Um, and I, I thought we'd see a different side of it. Scorsese on a different side of New York. But again, it's yeah. sort of a, a New York film that I love. Um, and then the other one is based upon this character um, of uh, and, and different character arcs for incels. Um, Punch Drunk Love. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Adam yeah. Sandler in Punch Drunk Love, one of his best performances, we'll talk about it next time, uh, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. So yeah. Those are the two. Great. Uh, and I, yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, wonderful. Uh, perhaps Adam Sandler's only good performance. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, he's funny. You got to admit yeah. he's funny in some books. Sure, fine. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, excellent. That sounds fa- fabulous. Uh, so just to right. get after hours, Scorsese, Punch Drunk Love by Paul Thomas Anderson. That's a. Uh, Next up. Okay. Great, David. Uh, thank you so much for this. Uh, it's been fun. Thank you. And thanks to all our listeners for continuing to hang in there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, tune in for each episode. Yeah. And any of my students who turn into this, you might get bonus marks. Uh-